structures are not serving us well. We need to creatively destroy the ships that brought us here and move into the land of the future with better tools. Tools that keep us safer and healthier, that create more wealth for more people, that foster more intimate and rewarding relationships. We need to leave behind what is not working. We need a modern revolution. We invite here, they are thinking differently, and we'll tell you where you can learn all about them later, after you have listened to them closely. For now, we don't want to impress you with what they have done, we want to impress you with what they have to say. The Modern Revolution will be podcasted. Okay, well, welcome to the Modern Revolution. And here we talk with guests who are multifaceted and affecting the world in many positive ways, not just for themselves, but for all of us. And in our podcast, we're not going to beat you over the head with their resume, implying that you have to believe everything they say just because of their past experiences. We're inviting our guests to speak about their experiences and their intentions first, and we're inviting you to listen closely to them. And should their ideas resonate with you, you can learn much more about them and the work that they do in our show notes at themodernrevolution.com. And today's guest is modern revolutionary Deborah Fries. And Deborah, you know, as I said, and I'm not trying to be reductive, but I understand you're a multidimensional person and you're doing work that affects us in many different ways. But if I was going to ask you to distill your mission and your work in the world down to perhaps its essence or simplest terms, may I ask you to describe it in that way? Yeah, I think there's, there's probably two levels of it, even trying to keep it simple. The, the first is shifting the way we think about how change happens, particularly big systems change. And since that's so abstract, um, the second level is the system that I'm most interested in changing is around inequality, in particular, the racial wealth divide in this country. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's a, I, I follow that really precisely and, and, um, and understand, I th- you know, I think that uh, where you're taking us. And, you know, the premise of the podcast is actually that the structures that brought us to this moment are working at cross purposes to many of us right now. And, and, um, and understanding that's, a, I think, an important part of being a citizen, both of the country and the world. So if I was going to ask you, um, and I think, you know, when you talk about inequality uh, being a primary thing, when you would describe the problem that you're trying to solve in the world, could you, could you pick a particular angle and, and talk to us about, like, the problem in the world that you're kind of facing head on? So, you know, it, it, it gets very sensitive to talk about this, but I am talking about the fundamentals of our capitalist structure. And so mm-hmm. um, I am not entirely anti-capitalist. Um, mm-hmm. I'm actually a capitalist myself. I'm a entre- serial entrepreneur. But the design of our current capitalist system has uh, the wealth divide built into it. It's baked in. It's not an accident. Um, And so the way that we've designed our capitalist system is to be able to extract as much 
labor from people and as much resources from the planet as possible in service of the accumulation of wealth. Mm -hmm. And since that's the, that's the predominant design, now there's all kinds of movements happening today that are trying to actually rethink that, which is what's really exciting about the time we're in. There is a series of revolutions happening, right? But, but, right. The, but the issue is we, we talk about a lot of different problems that are out there. You know, there's problems with food security, there's problems with homelessness, there's problems with gentrification. Underneath all that, I believe it has to do with the way capital accumulates in the hands of the few at the expense of the many. And then in this country, you have to add a layer of that being um, unequally distributed by race. So that's, that's the problem. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, um, I want to uh, have a real, um, I have a general question that I want to kind of follow that up with, but I want to ask a specific question, having heard you speak before and, uh, you know, given that geographically you have a focus on the Boston area, I mean, you gave in, um, in a talk that I've listened to, you give an emblem of what you mean by that inequality in terms of the gap between one group and another group in, in Boston. Uh, I'm presuming you know what I'm referring to. Could you kind of... I do. That, that, Absolutely. Yeah. It's a shocking statistic. Um, so, so the median net worth for a white family in Boston, a white household, is... $247,000, that's total assets minus total debt. And then I often ask people, um, you know, what, what do you think it is for a black family in Boston? And people say, you know, maybe $80,000 or $8,000. I'm like, take all the zeros off of that. It's $8. Yeah. It's actually $8 of total net worth. And so if you think about that and you're trying, you're trying to deal with the issue of wealth building, which is often through entrepreneurship, it's certainly through the ownership of assets, buildings and land and the means of production, it takes usually on average $30,000 of bootstrap capital for an entrepreneur to get a business off the ground. So if you're in Boston and you're dealing with $8 of net worth on your own and a segregated community where your, your friends and family and your neighbors are also dealing with that kind of economic profile, um, it's very, very difficult to begin to launch enterprises that can build wealth. And that, that I know that the Boston statistics seems radical, it is, but it's actually not totally out of line with the country. So um, Latino households are headed toward net zero wealth in 2073. Black households are headed toward net zero wealth in 2053. And we're also headed toward being a majority minority country in 2044. So, so it puts us on track for what you might call an economic apartheid state where, again, wealthier folks are white and folks, um, lower income folks, black folks, brown folks, et cetera, are moving toward net zero wealth. Well, let me, let me um, just in terms of when I heard you say that statistic, uh, I would say as somebody who thinks of himself as apprised of some of the very issues that you're talking about, I was shocked. I, uh, mm -hmm. And, and then I can tell you when I came home to my wife and described that, uh, what, and, you know, shared with her what I learned, she's like, how is that possible? She was incredulous in a way that she's inclined not to, to believe you, you know, type of thing. Uh -huh. and, uh, and so I think as people hear this, um, part of what uh, is important to me is that, we're, you know, the country has tripled its obesity rate since 1980. We're spending mm -hmm. $322 billion a year on diabetes. You know, as somebody who thinks a great deal about our food system and is focused on there, those are unambiguous numbers, and they're not things um, 
to be uh, trifled with in terms of, you know, is this happening or isn't this happening? And I think, you know, as we look around practically, um, you know, we see that. And, you know, and just for our audience, when they go and learn about you on our show mm-hmm. notes, um, the notion of you as a capitalist will be clear. You are extremely successful in a variety of ways. And to say you would be anti um, a meritocracy where people who do well are rewarded, you know, richly. I, I, I know what you're saying doesn't conflict with that. You're not suggesting something other than that. Um, but you're speaking, in my opinion, uh, to fairness. It's such a big thing that you just described. May I ask, is it something that you decided to pursue in a flash of like an epiphany? Or was mm-hmm. it an incre- incremental process over time? that brought you to bring your considerable talents and energies to, you know, doing what you're doing? Mm-hmm. No, I think it's, I think it's um, been there for me all along, but it, it's increased its focus and expression. So, by the way, I just want to make sure you can go home and tell your wife that that number came from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston report. So it's a real <laughs> number, <laughs> not, not one that I made up. Um, so I... You know, it's interesting. I, I was raised in a very um, socially conscious home. My, my great-grandmother, who I've heard lots of stories about, she died when I was quite young, but she um, came over as a poor immigrant from Poland and um, was very activist. She was, a, she was an avowed socialist, but she was put on McCarthy's list as a communist. Oh, my and goodness. She was sort of like an outspoken, fiery you know, woman that cared deeply about fairness and having escaped anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe and coming here, she sort of was aware that there was a different population suffering in this country than where she had come from, and it was black folks. And so I was raised with a consciousness around um, the racial divide. My, my aunt was a freedom rider jailed in Mississippi during the civil rights wow. movement. So there was something for me always about, especially a narrative um, as a Jew who came here saying, you know, wh- wh- no one cared for us there. Who are we responsible for attending to because we weren't attended to? Um, so there's wow. been that narrative. And um, when I started to do work internationally, I was working for the Burkana Institute from um, 2003 to 2010. And Burkana was working in the Global South. This was an organization that was founded by Meg Wheatley, my co-author and really one of the leading thinkers on systems thinking. Um, We were working in the Global South in communities like Zimbabwe, South Africa, India, Brazil, Mexico. We were working in places that international development had failed. Mm -hmm. But instead of having failed communities, we were working with the places that said, okay, no one's coming to help. Now what? It's up to us. And they were finding ways of creating healthy and resilient communities through relationships with each other, with the earth, um, with indigenous wisdom. And so we were in our book, Walk Out, Walk On, we profiled the patterns and practices across all of these communities who had said, you know what, the global international international development, international aid, global capitalism is actually part of the problem. That's what's causing some of our stuckness. We, we're walking out of that dependency. We're walking on to create healthy and resilient communities. And as I worked with them, they said, you know, I was spending most of my time in the global south, and they said, Deborah, we really appreciate your interest. We really appreciate your learning and your attention here. But if you really want to help, go home. 
Like, <laughs> your country is part of the problem. Your country is exporting an idea right. of, of how we should all develop. And right. look at what's happened in your own country. Look at the inequality. Go into your own neighborhoods and see who's experiencing the kind of devastation that, you know, you think is all down in the global south. And so that was, that was kind of the real wake-up call. It was like, please go home do your work at home and look for the inequality that's in your own backyard. And that, that seemed completely correct to me. Physician heal thyself. Uh, you know, don't hold on a second. Absolutely. Well, it must've been, it must've been um, disconcerting to, I'm sure you approached it with like a conviction of being um, a helper and, you know, to kind of come to, it's really, I think a fascinating thing for people to hear as we sort of evaluate, well, what, um, what do we do? And, and thank you, by the way, for telling me it came from the Federal Reserve, hardly a bastion <laughs> of uh, you know, people looking to skew numbers one way or the right, other. Right. So, you know, what, what I think is among the things that I find fascinating is that your perspective is so broad because it, in, it includes experiences um, and, you know, outside this country and in different contexts and, when we look for patterns in anything, having enough examples that one thing mimics another, um, I think helps us confirm well, what's a trend and, and frankly, what's truth and so on. So, I mean, the, you're describing the awfully powerful forces. And if I was, and I recognize this is something you could speak for a great deal of time on, but if, when you think about the strongest forces supporting the status quo how would you describe those? So this is, and, and this is something that you've heard me talk about before, and I, I think this is the heart of it, which is first we have to understand the nature of systems as self-organizing around an identity or a set of values and beliefs. So there's a lot more to say about self-organization, and I recommend that your listeners go to Meg Wheatley, Margaret Wheatley's work. Um, mm -hmm. But systems, systems self-organize around a set of values or, and beliefs. And the system, the sort of dominant system, which is a narrative, that I, is what I call the economics of separation. And it okay. has a, a storyline in it, which, is, which will sound very much very American, right? We are all self-focused, rugged individualists. Our biological reality is survival of the fittest, that competition is humanity's natural state, which means that there are those of us who are smarter and work harder and therefore earn what we gain, and then others are lazy and less capable and they need our help, which is, gives rise to philanthropy, that, that he who wins has earned the right to accumulate and that nature is here to serve our needs and support our growth, right? So that's individualism, survival of the fittest, competition, accumulation, and dominion over nature. That mm -hmm. is what I believe is the construction, what's underneath our story of, of an economics or a politics of separation, that we're separate and we're out to compete and survive. And it's actually not true of human nature. It's part of who we are, but it's not all of who we are. And, there's a, and, and, and from that story arises this kind of this um, economic, competitive, extractive, accumulative system that is today's form of capitalism. Yeah. There's, another, there's another story about who we are, though, right, which is that actually, as human beings, we are by nature generous, cooperative, and interdependent. 
And that rather than accumulate resources, that resources, if we look to nature as our teacher, resources are meant to flow. Like accumulation in nature is stagnation. Nature flows resources through a whole ecosystem. They often right. flow to the places where they're most needed. And so we've modeled a story about ourselves, which gives rise to this economic system, and it's incomplete. Again, it's not incorrect that we're competitive. It's just it's not all of who we are. And so this other story, which is by nature an economics of relationship, is something that we have to, I believe, start putting our attention on. And we're seeing that today in the rise of the solidarity economy movement, the regenerative economy movement, the local living economy, all kinds of alternative economic systems that are built around the values of relationship, flow, and cooperation. Yeah, I mean, when I, as I'm listening to you um, describe, you know, this, I mean, these are deep structures that uh, I think as somebody who would not want to live a thousand years ago, frankly, um, you know, I, I, I do have, uh, my personal sense is that <clears throat> there must be things about these structures that have served us in coming to make a certain type of progress and a certain level of progress. And it might be imperfect, but there must be something in those structures as deep as they are um, that had, uh, you know, a service. But I think part of what I'm interested in and what you're describing is that um, there has to be an evolution, there has to be a change and a growth um, in broadening of those structures to, to include, you know, more people, more ideas, more prosperity. Um, and I, so, I mean, when I listen to what you say, it resonates with me and I, I, I think I probably share a lot of your points of view, but when you look out into the world, what, what makes people not see this problem as serious as it in fact is? Like what's the difference between your keen awareness of how serious this is, and then how is it that um, other people are not seeing this as such a big deal? You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's about seriousness as much as it is almost about invisibility. It's kind of like water to the fish, right? Like okay. we, we are so immersed in that economics of separation it's, it, it's, it underpins the design of our school systems, right? Our school systems are focused on creating test passers who can, you know, get into schools and become job, you know, workers. Our mm -hmm. healthcare systems, which process people as if they were machines. Like, so, it, it, you know, it's not just our, our financial system. So it's, it's, it's in the it, – it's so the narrative of, frankly, the American dream that we can't see it. And so I think, I think that's where yeah. the work is, right, which is like how do, I, how do I even discern the fact that my story of being a competitive, separate, selfish person is, is actually not the full picture of who we are as humans because in, in our society, it's what, it's what we see all around us. And, and that kind of, I mean, um, my, my question that follows this, uh, I you know, ties exactly into what you're saying. And so in the work that you're doing in the world, I mean, I think you've already described this a little bit, but maybe, maybe you can distill it even further. Like what assumptions are you challenging in people? I mean, I, to some extent what I'm hearing is, hey, 
the fish is not recognizing its water on yeah. one level. However, if you're at the bottom of the totem pole of, you know, all of the, you know, economically at the bottom and so socially, however you might like to describe the least advantage of us, you probably have a clear-eyed view of this in a way that on the top it looks really different to you where, you know, you're thinking, well, I live in a meritocracy and I'm doing so great because I am so great. I mean, Ralph Allison, right, talking about the folks at the bottom of the totem pole has a much clearer view than the people at the, at the top, an invisible mm-hmm. man. I mean, if you were going to kind of talk about maybe another assumption, is the assumption that all these structures are correct? Or is there another way you would describe, like, yeah, your challenge to what people think day to day? I think I think you're pointing to a critical issue, which it, it is true that those who are winning in the system not only can't see that it's a flawed system, but have a stake in keeping it going. Those who are being, you know, harmed by the system or left out or oppressed by the system do have a clearer view of the system because they're outside of it or underneath mm-hmm. it. And and when I when I think about you know one of the one of the greatest lessons for me in my work when I was at Burkana was spending time in Zimbabwe from 2004 to 2008, which was when the country was in a total systems collapse, like mm-hmm. 89.7 sextillion percent inflation and the failure of all the hospitals. <laughs> by the way, that means like, you know, you have to buy two beers at once because by the time you get the second one, it would have doubled in price. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> like, you know, 13 <laughs> figures on your phone bill. You don't even know what the oh number is. So, right. so the, the, the society stopped functioning. And... I was with a community there called Kufunda Learning Village, who in the face of absolute true scarcity, right, no food system working, no hospitals, no schools, nothing working. In the face of that, they declared abundance. They said, I know it doesn't look like it's true, but we declare that we have what we need. And when we live in the world from that point of view, we see all kinds of resourcefulness, ingenuity, and generosity. And, and as a result of that, they came up with all kinds of approaches to solving food problems, water problems, even dealing with the fact that they couldn't get antiretroviral drugs and they started to get really inventive about using their own herbs. Wow. So, so one of the things about these structures is when we're inside of them, it's incredibly hard um, to break out. It's incredibly hard to think with resourcefulness and ingenuity. When we are outside of them or underneath them or whatever it may be, there is so much solidarity happening. And it's not just in Zimbabwe. When I came home and started to talk in Boston with folks about, hey, how do we you know, use capital to direct it to communities of color? I found you know, lending circles of like a dozen Latino families that had been lending to each wow. other at 0% interest for years. You know, there were all kinds of solidarity behaviors, meaning our, we, we are interdependent in our success. We won't, leave, we won't leave each other behind, right? That's not our dominant narrative, but that is present everywhere you look in this country and outside this country. And so that's why I do think it makes sense to look for the places where the dominant narrative of separation has failed you will find all these other stories of relationship and interdependence and generosity. Yeah, and so it makes me, uh, it makes me very, so I've got a little bit of goosebumps, in fact, as you're talking, just because, I mean, in, 
and I don't. This is this is an interview of you, not a not a discussion of my ideas. But I do, you know. They're have welcome. A, yeah. <laughs> well, I have a point of view that, like, in an absence of a vision of where the community should go as a community, things end up, you know, moving down to the only we're being worried about the individual. And I think when I look at people that have, you know, use that term hit rock bottom or their, you know, their options have evaporated, there is a, there is a portion of people out in the world that from that point they've moved into healthier um, living. Uh, and I, when I think about systems, I hope that we are, we don't, let our systems break everything to the extent that we're a Zimbabwe before we start um, to move in a direction that I think starts to heal these things that you say are broken. And so that was I, actually my, just, I just want to say when I was in Zimbabwe, that was one of the main things I was asking was, okay, so in the face of total systems collapse, what shows up is human goodness. And we saw that after Katrina in Louisiana, what people naturally do with each other. We see that all the times in crisis. Yeah. So my question was, what ha is it possible to have a revolution, a systems change, an evolution in the face of systems that are still working just well enough for just enough, enough of us that we keep them propped up? That, that's that's yeah. kind of my, what, my core question. Like, can we have radical transformative change when things haven't collapsed? Yeah, and I, you know, for, for a person interested in those, it will be interesting to gauge people reaction to that as they listen to um, podcasts like this and they have and they consume you know information that heightens their awareness of some of these broken things if it spurs them into being proactive rather than having to be reactive which is a nice natural um, transition into my next question and i'm looking for something small um mm -hmm. and so if, if we were to say to somebody look i i'm not asking you to go and you know, do something radical. But I want you to, uh, I want you to consider this small behavioral change um, to move us in a direction that you know reduces inequality. What we talked about things at such a broad scale. What what's something specific and small that helps us? Mm -hmm. So I will give you something specific and small, but then I'll tell you why I think that's not adequate. So, um, okay, that's fine. So there is so, so so specific and small, you know, and I know this varies from place to place. So I think you have to think about your own demographics and your own community. But you know, one of the practices that I have is anytime I'm in a room where I'm looking at either who's at the front of the room on panels, speaking in leadership, um, who's in the room and I see a room that is not representative of the population that ought to be at the table, every single time that happens, I do something about it, right? Either, for example, if I'm invited to speak on a panel, usually it's about economy and racial justice, and it's an all-white panel, <laughs> which shouldn't right. ever happen, right? So right, it's like, right. no, I won't no, I won't participate in that. If, you know, you need to shift who's in the conversation, particularly who's at the front of the room. So, so there's one, one small thing is to how do I take that lens everywhere I go? Now, that isn't necessarily about race in every community, right? You might be in a, a you know, rural white community. It is about inequality, right? So who, what population is being chronically left out or is invisible 
that needs to be brought into the conversation. It could be young people. It could be elders. But how do we say I, I, we can't have the same voices continuing to try to solve the same problems we haven't solved? So that's right. one small thing in every room that you're in. And I'm also going to say I get the importance of small changes, but the issue that I have that I'm talking about is not a behavioral change. It is a root shift in belief system. And so how do you deal with that? And that, and that would be, well, I'll give you small things to do, like read some stuff, right? You know, read right, right. The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Read okay. Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Read The Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano. Like begin to come into relationship with the narratives of what might appear as an other and start to understand and see our own society from a different viewpoint. It, it can be fundamentally awakening to sort of say, oh, wow, I, I had no idea that there's an entire other version of America than I've been exposed to. Um, and, and to be in, engaged in that narrative opens up how we see our own dominant culture. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, not everybody's being invited to panels and in a position right. of, you know, bringing in voices to discussions you know many people that's something that they may listen to and go well i understand that but um you know i don't that does not apply to me but with this um and i would understand that reaction if i was listening and um and that could be my response to to that but i think what you said on the heels of that uh is really striking because what i the way i heard it was um there's a, you're inviting people to be intellectually curious about the, the way our, you know, both I'm sure you would consider it global, but certainly starting with their community and, you know, the nation to be a little more intellectually curious about what's, what's going on in groups outside their own. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. I think you're um, inviting an openness to other people as you talk about, you know, obviously being separate, you're asking people to, uh, to begin with learning and you know, to begin with, Hey, uh, broaden what you know and let that by, I think what I'm hearing is then by extension, as you go into whatever behaviors you have in the future, you will bring, you bring something else with you. Your backpack is full of other tools by virtue of learning other things. Is that, is that a fair paraphrase of kind of what you're suggesting or? Yeah, I mean, I, ideally, you know, if, if I knew for each person how to describe a way to move beyond intellectual cu curiosity and interrelational curiosity, that, that would be right. the real key, right? Which is how do right. you, if, if your world is not filled with meaningful relationships with people who have a different perspective on our economic system or our culture than you do, how do you come into relationship with them? That, that I yeah, think, is yeah, really yeah. where the door opener is. Right. Okay. All right. Excellent. Um, well, we're going to, we have two questions as we kind of head in to the tail end of this. And um, I, the reason why we move at this pace and have a structure to the conversation is that uh, this podcast could be about 12 hours long if I explored everything <laughs> I'd like to explore about that. And uh, I've uh, committed to the audience that these are going to have a concise structure. And um, I'm going to ask you in the, in the next question to um, – to pick maybe an accomplishment that is in your background that you would have, you know, our listeners understand. And you could either pick it as like a 
point of pride, like, hey, this is something I'm super proud of, or a point of instruction, like, hey, I went in trying to solve a particular problem and, uh, and learn how, you know, learn from me in terms of how I got this done. Could, do you have a story that you could tell along those lines? I think it's it's the one that I'm like right most deeply immersed in right now, which is with with the Boston Impact Initiative, which is my current work, um, right. which is a a integrated capital fund that's focused on closing the racial wealth divide, which mm-hmm. is very hard to do. Um, but one of the things that I'm most excited about with this is that generally we're the the way to solve the issue of racial inequality is often in the domain of philanthropy. And so people mm-hmm. do use ec- economic development dollars and grant dollars and throw um, services at communities, and it doesn't do any wealth building. And we've sort of cracked the nut on how to structure investment capital so that um, there's wealth building through asset ownership opportunities for entrepreneurs of color in the Boston area. And that, you know, we, we did a lot of pioneering work to get that structured correctly from a legal and regulatory standpoint. And I want everybody to know, like anybody who wants to do something like that will give you all of what we did for free. We want other people to do this. We want community foundations to do it. We want investment funds to do it. We want entrepreneurs to do it. And so, you know, that there is a way to use investment and capital and philanthropy in combination to, to, to take on this challenge. Um, Mm -hmm. It was a hard, you know, it's a hard thing to figure out, but we at least have one pilot going and, and would love to, shift the way people think about how they deploy capital to solve this problem? Well, one of the things that I feel like is different now than, you know, certainly probably 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and and before that, you know, that's a dramatic change is that things that happen positively within a specific community, you know, the word can spread in 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 a much more dramatic way now, I think, than ever before, which is exciting to me as, you know, we get a chance to learn and watch your successes and other successes in other places. Um, we can we can spread that word more closely. And you know, this podcast is an example of of something that um, it's trying to accomplish just that. And and so my last question is is simply on the show notes we have some good direction for people to learn you know, about the Boston Strategic Initiative and books that you've written. Is there Anything else, any other place that you would have people um, find out about all the various things that you're doing? Would you like to direct them to any place other than uh, what we kind of put on the show notes? I think I think I kind of covered it there, but I, my um, DebraFreeze.com website links to right. the three other websites that I work with. So Boston Impact Initiative, Old Oak Dojo, and Walk Out, Walk On, which are sort of the three yeah. main initiatives. And they, they – sound very different, but to me, they're all focused on the same thing. How do we understand systems change, apply it um, around the racial wealth divide, and the dojo is about gathering in place to shift our relationships. And so how, you know, that, that notion of really being very relational, place-focused, intimate with where we are in order to solve problems is um, what those resources point to. Yeah. But Deborah, I was so inspired as I, you know, learned more deeply about what you're doing. And I went through the materials that, that you had sent and did some reading about, uh, you know, your different projects. It was, it's extraordinary you know, for the amazing work that you're, you're doing in the world. Um, so I, I'm going to 
kind of take us out here for the podcast, but I'm, I'm so grateful that you were willing to spend, you know, this time with us. And I look forward to our, our humble podcast is finding a rapid audience. And as people listen to you talk, uh, I think it's, you know, hopefully reaches an even broader podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. So today's Modern Revolution Deborah Freeze is moving us forward. And like others we've talked about, they're clear-eyed about our situation, and they're brave enough to bring their thoughts and words to the arena and to let them inspire you to bring your ideas to the, to the world as well. So don't look away. The Modern Revolution needs all of us. The show notes for this show and all our shows can be found at themodernrevolution.com. So please go there where you can check out the show notes and learn more about our guests and see some of our fun videos like Tell Big Soda to Piss Off. The Modern Revolution is a production of A Well-Run Life. In A Well-Run Life, we have an additional podcast by the same name, A Well-Run Life, and it's three minutes long. And should you be interested in some of our additional ideas, Peter Dealey, myself, I have a book called The Leadership Miracle, and it's 35 minutes and it's on audible.com for $3.95, so you can check us out there as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next episode. This podcast sounds a little bit better on the podcast player, CastBox. In fact, I think of it as Podcast Bliss. They've been a great supporter of ours through this podcast and our other podcast, A Well-Run Life. And so if you haven't checked out CastBox, we encourage you to do it today.